families, family stories, family history. Now, digging into family history can reveal hidden gems. So indulge me as I share with you some of my recent discoveries. The other day, I discovered that I am a direct descendant on my mother's side of Sir Hugh Usdeen MacDonald, Knight of Dingwall Castle, first Laird of Sleet. He's my 13th great-grandfather. And his father, Alexander MacDonald, first Lord of the Isles, 10th Earl of Ross, is my 14th great-grandfather. And he was the bane of King James I of Scotland's existence. I cannot claim Alexander's wife, Elizabeth Seton, Queen of the Hebrides, Baroness of Lochaber, Baroness of the Isles, Lady of Huntley Castle and Ross, as my 14th great-grandmother, because Hugh MacDonald was Alexander's illegitimate son. The full title of Second Lord of the Isles, etc., passed to Alexander and Elizabeth's firstborn and only son, John Angus. My ancestor, though illegitimate, was worthy of a lesser title, First Laird of Sleet. And the honors passed down to my first great-grandfather, James Alexander MacDonald's title, Postmaster of Barney's River, Nova Scotia. He received a medal from King George V for his service. I also discovered that my 12th great-grandfather is Donald Gallic Richard MacDonald, the second Laird of Sleet. The only detail I have beyond his dates is the annotation on his date of death, murdered by his half-brother Archie. Now, digging into family history reveals that families of the past were as complicated and dysfunctional as families today, especially, it seems, McDonald's and their descendants. But Jesus tells a story that begins with no Scottish connection, although I remember a preacher in my childhood who titled his sermon about this parable, The Doer Face at the Cayley. There's no Scottish connection within the story itself. It just begins. Jesus says, there's this man who has two sons. No names given. Any man with two sons. We might call them Donald and Archie to tell them apart. This is a story about a seriously dysfunctional family. And we don't hear anything about the mother of the two sons, this isn't Scotland, where matrilineal heritage is just as important as patrilineal. This is a parable where every detail matters, and only the details that serve the storyteller's purpose are included. But a parable invokes our imagination. That's what a parable does, and we get to fill in the blanks. So Archie goes to his father and asks for his share of the estate. He doesn't want a corner of the family farm where he can build his ain wee hoose and start a family and contribute to the future of the clan. He wants money. Money. Now, in Jesus' time, the idea of reducing inherited property to a monetary value was anathema. But it could be done 
in desperate circumstances, but not these circumstances. And there was a provision for a landholder to divide his property among his heirs before his death. Some of you who've inherited cottages may identify with this. But it can only be done with a written contract setting out strict terms that bound the heirs to remain on the land at least till their father's death. Archie just wants the money. One third of the dollar value of the estate. His father gives in, he calls up his accountant, he frees the cash and gives it to his son number two and lets his younger son treat him as if he's dead. The land, the buildings, the farm equipment, the indentured servants and slaves, they go to Donald, son number one, and we'll meet him later. There's a point in the classic movie, Singing in the Rain. You know the movie? The ballet sequence. Gene Kelly arrives in the city, a country boy, with money in his pocket and a desire to be free. And he shouts out, he sings out, gotta dance. And he hears other people respond and he finds willing dance partners, including one dancer. She sure knows how to dance. But then there's the temptress. She doesn't need to dance. And she knows how to take the rube for everything he's got. End of ballet, there's no second act, and there's no pig in sight. Archie dances and spends his way to desperation. Jesus says he attaches himself to a farmer. He calculates. All he has to offer for some food is his body his labor, any labor. And so he lands in the muck with the pigs. And he has to try to steal food from the animals just for a bite of food. If you've ever seen pigs eat, they don't share. Now much has been made of those poor pigs and how pigs are unclean and Archie, a good Jewish boy, shouldn't go near them. But Jesus doesn't say anything about that, and Archie doesn't kill and eat any pork. But anyone who hears Jesus tell the story live and in person might well remember a popular saying. When Israelites are reduced to eating carob pods, they repent. Archie has hit rock bottom or mud and manure bottom. But does he repent? Jesus says he comes to himself. And people still debate over what that really means. He comes to himself. I think he realizes, he calculates again, what's still there back home with the father who he has treated as dead, but the father who is always kind and giving. So Archie starts to add things up father is actually not dead. Father is dependably generous. Servants there live a good life, better than his life. And, well, big brother always needs hands to work the farm. 
I'll go home, he says, I'll lay it all out for dad, and he rehearses his speech. How can dad turn me down? So you think Archie is genuinely sorry for what he's done? Remember, Jesus doesn't say he repented. Or is he just getting ready to use the old man again? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because before he can finish his well-rehearsed speech, he is smothered in love, robed and ringed and shod. And then he's lost in wonder, love, and praise at a party given in his honor. And father cries, my son has returned, dead now alive, lost now found. And that's the last we see or hear from Archie. Now enter son number one. But actually Donald won't enter. He comes near when he hears what Amy Jill Levine translates as symphony and chorus. He sends a servant to look into matters, and he's mortified, and he won't budge, and his father has to come to him to beg him to join the party. But son number one, it seems, is doing mental math, just like his brother did back in the pigsty. Donald can guesstimate the costs he will have to absorb, the value of everything the party will consume. His father admits everything on the farm belongs to Donald, and Donald can smell the barbecue, and he's memorized the price per pound of prize beef. He remembers every disappointment. He's drafted an invoice of perceived slights and insults he figures he knows how his brother spent the money dad gave him. And he won't call Archie his brother. He's this son of yours. Donald has written his brother off as a loss. He values his father as, well, something less than a father, something close to a slave driver. His father calls Donald, not just son with a capital S, but child, a word of love. Now, we don't know how son number one responds to his father's love. We, we, know, we don't know how it goes with son number two, and we don't know if Donald and Archie will ever reconcile. Jesus just leaves it and us there. I like to imagine, I like to picture that the old man threw his, his account books into the fire the day Archie left. He stopped calculating, keeping record. He lost a son. Amy Jill Levine calls this story the parable of the man who lost his sons, plural. One ran away. The other slipped into a slew of resentment. With this story, Jesus says, stop counting. Grace and moral math can't exist together. Only God can judge and assign value. 
And God has a bad habit. God forgives the human record of sin and then crumples the list and tosses it so far away we can never find it again to use against others and ourselves. Grace and moral math can't exist together. And I think there's maybe an example in the story of Omar Khadr. And whatever you or I may believe about his guilt or innocence, where he should be today, the life he lives today depends on whose moral calculations win the contest. As a young teen, zealous and confused, as religious adolescents usually are, he became either a child soldier in a war or an assassin. Now he's a man. Has he grown up? Has he changed his beliefs? Has he lost his zeal? On one side, the math is a simple addition. Age 15 plus 10 years in Guantanamo Bay minus torture factor in a possible forced confession plus or minus plus three years of imprisonment in Canada and then add four years on conditional release. So last week a judge ruled he has served the equivalent of his original eight-year sentence avoiding an argument with the moral math of those who believe Omar Carter should still be in jail. They say the eight years in Guantanamo before his confession don't count. He was a prisoner of war. Add eight years of hard time after his confession and then factor in the value of a life the man Omar killed. How many more years does that add up to? And that man's family has set a dollar value and are suing to get it. So whose moral math will prevail? Again, I'm not trying to start a debate over Omar Khadr's guilt or innocence. But I believe a person, a person has been lost in this exercise in calculation, counting, comparing values, and this is what happens whenever human beings bring war into the world. Daughters and sons of God are lost. Jesus responds to men who are trying to figure out if he is worth what lesser people say he is. And he responds with stories. A story about one sheep who's worth as much as 99 other sheep at least by the math of heaven. A story about one coin out of ten, a pittance to a Pharisee, a fortune to the woman who loses it. A story about a man who has two sons and almost loses them both. Jesus leaves them and us hanging, hoping both boys can be reconciled, and then we realize We've stopped counting, and we just want the best for Donald and Archie. The Apostle Paul says that God has given us God's own ministry of reconciliation, and we can't do that work of bringing people together, bridging divisions, repairing breaches. We can't do that until we stop counting. 
God has already decided that we are all worthy by reconciling humanity to God's self, bridging the divide, repairing the breach between God and us all. Amen. Glory to God.